Do you remember Italy Gate? It was a conspiracy theory that made it all the way to the White House after the 2020 election and claimed that somehow an Italian defense contractor had conspired with the CIA to use military satellites to flip votes from Trump to Biden. Pennsylvania Republican Congressman Scott Perry was the one who brought that theory to the White House. He texted former President Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and he texted him things like, why can't we just work with the Italian government on Italy Gate?" Perry was ultimately one of just four Republican members of Congress that the January 6th committee referred to the House Ethics Committee for failing to cooperate with its investigation. The others were California Congressman Kevin McCarthy, Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, and Arizona Congressman Andy Biggs. McCarthy is obviously now the Speaker of the House. And as of tonight, Perry, Jordan, and Biggs, all three of them, are officially members of the House Oversight Committee, the committee that, under its new Republican leadership, has devoted itself to investigating President Biden. Other notable members are announced tonight are Arizona's Paul Gosar and Georgia's Marjorie Taylor Greene, who were, of course, both stripped of their committee assignments last session for posting death threats against Democratic colleagues. Also on the committee, far-right conservative holdouts that fought Speaker McCarthy over his leadership, like Colorado's Lauren Boebert and Florida's Anna Paulina Luna. The new chairman of that committee has spent today going on rants on Fox News and Newsmax about how the Bidens are secretly getting money from China and how he and his committee are going to uncover it all. And now he has the help of Congressman Italygate and the rest of the MAGA Dream Team to help him do just that. So there's that. Republicans' first order of business was voting on a bill to defund the IRS, as well as legislation that could subject certain abortion doctors to prosecution. And now we are also learning that one of the concessions Speaker McCarthy gave to right-wing hardliners was to allow a vote on a bill to repeal the entire tax code, the whole thing, and replace it with a 30% sales tax. So the wealthy can skip out on that troublesome income tax and our nation's poor are hit with a regressive fair tax. This is the stuff that is at the top of the Republican agenda. Top priorities for the GOP-led 118th Congress. The thing that makes these bonkers proposals even more wild is that literally not one of them has a chance of actually becoming law. Republicans can be as loud and crazy as they want in the House of Representatives for the next two years. They can vote to repeal the Constitution or the tax code or Robert's Rules of Order, but without the Senate, or the White House, they won't actually get anything done. If you want to know where real power lies in the next two years, the stuff that can change the lives of Americans, you have to look at the states. This was a swearing-in ceremony of Maryland Governor Wes Moore this afternoon. It was a huge deal. Oprah Winfrey was one of the speakers, so you know it was a huge deal. And Wes Moore will go down in history as the first ever black governor of the state of Maryland. But in the more immediate future, Governor Moore holds another distinct honor. There is something called a trifecta in U.S. government. Those are states where Democrats hold both chambers of the legislature and the governor's mansion. States where Democrats won't need to negotiate with people who want to abolish the IRS or hunt down Italian satellites. In total, there are now 17 states with Democratic trifectas. That's up from just six in 2017. But the states worth really focusing on here are the four states where Democrats just won their trifecta this year. They are all M states, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, and Maryland. 
Republicans held at least one piece of the governing trifecta in each of these states for years. But now, with the swearing in of Governor Wes Moore, all of the state legislators and governors for those states have been sworn in and those Democratic trifectas are complete. And now Democrats in those states can really get to work. In Maryland, Governor Moore and the legislature have already laid out their top priorities, increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour, codifying the right to an abortion, and gun safety regulation. Not a peep, by the way, about Italian satellites. Legislators in Massachusetts are already planning to file at least two dozen gun safety bills as early as this week. In Michigan, Democratic legislators have introduced bills to repeal the state's anti-union right-to-work law, to repeal the state's zombie abortion ban from 1931, and to expand civil rights protections to include sexual orientation and gender identity. In Minnesota, Democratic legislators are working on legislation to protect the right to abortion, to legalize marijuana, to allow undocumented immigrants to get driver's license, and to require Minnesota utilities to move to 100 percent clean electricity by the year 2040. I know, we all know, things in Washington are a circus right now. And for the moment, that is all they are. The state level is where the real governing is really happening. Democrats have two years in power, at least. So what can they get done? Joining us now are Democrats Winnie Brinks, who is the Michigan Senate Majority Leader, and Melissa Hortman, Speaker of the Minnesota House. Thank you, ladies, for being here tonight. It is good to have you with us. There is at least on one side of the aisle, a lot of excitement about what's happening at the state level. Um, and I will start with you, Winnie. How should, how should you know, the voters of your state set their expectations in terms of what's going to get passed and how fast it's going to get passed? Yeah, I think you heard in your introduction um, how important state legislatures are. So we are incredibly excited about um, the aggressive agenda that we are going to pursue. Um, you mentioned some of those things. We will also add uh, expanding civil rights for LGBTQ folks, uh, defending abortion rights here in the state of Michigan. Uh, and so we're we're ready to get to work uh, very quickly. Uh, we have committed to be very thoughtful and very deliberate about pursuing our agenda, but we have a lot to do. Yeah. Well, Melissa, in terms of that, the speed with which you can act on this stuff, I mean, Scott Walker, who was interviewed about this trifecta, is not a fan of the fact that Democrats hold this much power at the state level. But he did concede that effectively the most significant accomplishments come at the beginning of the legislature coming into power. I wonder if you agree with that and whether you think we're going to see a flurry of activity at these in these Democratic trifectas in the coming months rather than the coming years. Yeah, I think you'll see a lot of similar work across those uh, four M states that you talked about. I, you know, Democrats are really united in our values and our priorities. And what's wonderful here in Minnesota is to finally have a Minnesota Senate that's also controlled by Democrats. For the last four years here in the House, we've been passing things like gun safety regulation and uh, paid family medical leave. Uh, we've been a pro-choice majority, but now we have a pro-choice majority in the Minnesota Senate. And so we can finally take action and put those bills on the governor's desk. Does it worry you, Winnie, um, 
that when, when, when states become, well, actually, let me, let, me, let me ask you a slightly different question. The idea that states are the sort of laboratories for democracy is, or just laboratories, if not for democracy, is something that's been road tested by Republicans who've had a, a, a number of these trifecta and, have, and their trifectas have outnumbered the Democrats for the, in recent years. Are Democrats prepared to be as aggressive in terms of the laboratory aspect of, of these state legislatures as Republicans have been? In years past? And is that a political risk at all? I think here in Michigan, we are really ready to take on that challenge. We've got 40 years of pent up policy ideas uh, in, here in the Senate, uh, and the Democrats are ready to take that on. Uh, I think uh, we do have a narrow majority, so we will be thoughtful. We will be looking for some bipartisan cooperation on certain things. And I think that we can get there with some folks. Um, our constituents are really tired of the chaos and the corruption and uh, the conspiracy theories that you have seen far too often coming out of the out of Michigan in the news. And so uh, we're really ready to get to down to the fundamentals. So I think our legislature is ready to do that. And I think our constituents are really hungry to see that from us. So I don't think the political risk is uh, uh, going to be a big problem. Do you think let me just ask you a follow on that. How are Republicans in the state houses reacting? Are they I mean, I know that I, certain certain Republicans have been quoted as saying, man, it was like a bucket of cold water effectively when Democrats took these trifectas. Do they seem prepared to work across the aisle? Do they see what's happening in Washington and say, hey, that looks like a good idea, pursuing conspiracy theories about Italian satellites? Or do they actually want to get real work done? I think that the Republicans clearly in Michigan are incredibly divided. We will be able to find folks who are uh, interested in doing good things for the constituents that they represent. I'm confident in that. Uh, it may be tough for them at times, but I do think there are people there that we can extend a hand to and do some uh, good policy together with them. Uh, time will tell, of course, if I'm right, uh, but we are ready to get to work and give that a try. I've been in the minority for 10 years in the legislature. I know how they feel. Uh, and I was always really working on finding things that I could do for the people in my district. And I hope that they will, too. Melissa, do you think that they, I mean, we are we are led to believe by the behavior of the Republican Party that there is no quarter given to bipartisanship, that there is no interest in working across the aisle, at least if you look at the 118th Congress. Is the situation markedly different as you see it for Republicans at the state level and the state legislature in your state? Well, things have changed so much. You know, the Republicans have gone so far to the right. We really have a lot of extreme right wing Republicans. So it's harder to find that common ground. You know, back in the middle 2000s, you would have um, moderates on both sides of the aisle willing to work together. But I think it's harder now. Uh, you know, you, there used to be um, pro-choice Republicans. There are no pro-choice Republicans anymore. So, for example, tomorrow when we uh, acts to encode uh, reproductive freedom in Minnesota state law, there won't be any bipartisanship because there just simply aren't any pro-choice Republicans. Do you feel, do you guys, I'll ask you both this, do you feel like the clock is ticking or are you confident that the measures you will enact will be so broadly popular that your power could be cemented for years to come? Winnie, you go first. Well, I would just say that, you know, we have two years here in the Minnesota House, we will be up for election in 2024. And the one thing I know about being on the ballot is there's always a surprise in the election. People never get the results that they expect. 
from Minnesota electing Jesse Ventura governor in 1998 to Democrats doing surprisingly well in a midterm election in 2022. We only know we have these two years, so we are going to make every minute worth it. And I loved hearing when he talked about, you know, that they're really ready to go in Michigan. We've been saying hashtag LFG and our PG version of that is we are really ready to go. I think I think our viewers know what hashtag LFG means um, <laughs> and applaud the 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 audacity of that hashtag. Winnie, do you feel I mean, I'll ask you a slightly different question, which is, does it does it disturb you or is it cause for concern that when so much action is relegated to state level, the state level, the federal government and the, its ability to act in, in any sort of meaningful capacity it's, it's an indicator that the federal government has the, the power of the federal government has atrophied. And, and, and while it is great that Democrats may be able to enshrine things like the right to reproductive freedoms and gun safety legislation and a host of other things, there are issues that demand national movement, that demand national legislation. Do you feel like that prospect of that is as far off as it has been in a while? Yeah, I think it makes the work of the states all that more important. We need to stay focused on getting as much done as we can as soon as we can. We also need to be thoughtful and deliberate about those things so that we uh, are in power, not just two years, but four years, eight years, 10 years. Uh, and uh, we've got an excellent caucus. We have an incredible partner in Governor Whitmer. Uh, and so we are really optimistic that we'll be able to make a difference and really, um, in many cases, offset the negative impact of the unproductivity of the Congress at this time. Can I just ask you one more question, Winnie, in terms of how Democrats got to power? In Michigan, there was an independent redistricting commission, and that was in 2021. It created competitive maps, and the end result is that Democrats have taken over. Democrats have won the trifecta. What should we read into that lesson? A, should there be more independent commissions? Should we take gerrymandering off the table? Should we allow independent bodies to decide the congressional maps, to decide the state maps, uh, and and B, um, what, do you, what does that say about the Republican Party? Yeah, we should absolutely have more independent uh, redistricting commissions in every state. Uh, it worked very effectively here. We now have a legislature that looks like our state, not just in terms of party uh, affiliation, but also in terms of diversity. And that was made possible in large part because of fair districts that were drawn this year. Um, so I would highly recommend that to anybody who believes in democracy uh, and in representation uh, and to work for that in your state. We also had fantastic candidates who are hardworking and they bring great resumes to the job. So uh, we are really optimistic about what we can get done. The total population of states uh, with Democratic trifectas is now close to 140 million, compared with about 131 million for Republicans. Democrats represent more Americans in this country than Republicans do. Winnie Brinks, Michigan Senate Majority Leader and Melissa Hortman, Speaker of the Minnesota House. Ladies, LFG, thanks for making the time tonight. Thank you. We have a lot more to come tonight, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' new moves to censor American history. But first, the latest on investigations into former President Trump as he previews a new explanation <laughs> for why there were so many empty folders found at his beach club. That's coming up next.
Hey everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. While President Biden is keeping a low profile on the classified documents found at his home and office, the other guy facing a DOJ investigation into his handling of classified material, that guy has quite a lot to say. Today, former President Trump took to Truth Social to rail against the DOJ and offer his take on the type of documents that were found in his possession. Remember, these were just ordinary, inexpensive folders with various words printed on them, but they were a cool keepsake. As they say, one man's cool keepsake is another man's classified nuclear document. But that line of argument, that these were just ordinary, inexpensive folders with various words printed on them, really a nothing burger. That that argument is in line with previous reporting that those investigating the former president believe his motive for holding on to classified documents is all about ego, a desire to hold on to White House records as trophies and mementos rather than for financial gain. Cool keepsakes. But again, also classified nuclear documents. Last week, the New York Times reported that special counsel Jack Smith has asked prosecutors to stress test potential charges related to Trump's handling of national security documents and that no charging decision will be made until this summer at the earliest. Meanwhile, another investigation from days past is now showing signs of life. Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, met with prosecutors in Manhattan yesterday in connection with hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels to keep her from talking about an affair before the 2016 election. The Times says yesterday's meeting with Cohen could be a sign that that long dormant investigation is gathering steam. As for the Fulton County investigation into Trump's possible election interference in Georgia, today the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reveals that a completed report from the special grand jury investigating Trump's conduct in Georgia in 2020, it could be released soon or in months. So that could be happening imminently or maybe a really long time from now, which is okay. But the biggest investigation of all, and the one that poses the most legal peril for the former president, is also the one we have heard the least about in recent weeks, the DOJ investigation into Trump's role in the January 6th insurrection. The latest public rumblings we got from that investigation were subpoenas sent last month to Rudy Giuliani, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, and Trump allies who were involved in spreading conspiracy theories about voting machines and fundraising ahead of January 6th. 
So many investigations, so little time, or so much time, as the case may be. Joining us now is Michael Schmidt, Washington correspondent for The New York Times and the author of Donald Trump versus the United States, Inside the Struggle to Stop a President, which is now out in paperback. Michael, it's a pleasure to have you on the set in person here. Thanks for having me. So how are you looking at all of this? I mean, on the one hand, let's start with Alvin Bragg calling Michael Cohen in to testify about Stormy Daniels. Does it surprise you that the dust is being blown off that investigation, given how many other seemingly high priority targets that are on the deck as far as investigations and potential indictments? So if we remember the history there with that office, they had this full blown investigation into Trump that ended with a prosecutor leaving because the prosecutor really wanted to bring the case and really angst about in the office that they weren't going to go forward after doing all this work. Now, here they are all this time later bringing Michael Cohen back in. And it's hard to believe that they're bringing Cohen back in just to sort of kick the tires. Yeah. You, they probably have a pretty good idea of what Michael Cohen knows, and they're trying to use him in some sort of way to build something. It's just he's a very high-profile target. Whenever he goes in, it brings attention to the investigation, something that prosecutors usually don't want. Sometimes they do want that public attention. But they've brought Cohen in here now, I believe, for at least the second time. And it, it, it shows something and it shows a level of activity on an investigation to the Stormy Daniels payment, which was which was made all the way back in 2016. So, you know, the- well, you're you're, su- you're suggesting opaquely, I will say, my friend, that maybe this is to pressure some other part of Trump world into doing something. The person who is serving five months on Rikers is Alan Weisselberg, a key figure in the Trump organization who for a long time people thought was going to get further pressure to flip on Trump. He hasn't as yet. Could this be that bid to get Weisselberg to flip and and basically spill so. the tea on Trump? I don't think so, because I think he's he's already been sentenced and he's he's gone away. And I don't think they would bring him back to charge him more. I, I think they probably charge him as much as they could. Um, but but you don't engage with Michael Cohen in that way if you're not doing something really serious, because it kicks up all this dust and it kicks up this public this this speculation it says well what's alvin bragg doing right and what is he up to and if he's bringing michael cohen in it looks like he's up to something and he doesn't want to live with the, the you know letting you know having the new york public say well what happened to this investigation well especially after this sort of dramatic exit stage right of these former prosecutors who were frustrated with alvin bragg's position on this inheriting the case from Cy Vance. mar-a-lago i want to talk a little bit about where we stand on that probably my favorite trump quote of all time Remember, these were just ordinary, (laughs) inexpensive folders, because expensive folders would have been a whole other can of beans, inexpensive folders with various words printed on them, but they were a cool keepsake. Should people be rethinking the the potential indictment of Trump as far as Mar-a-Lago, given the position Merrick Garland is now in, in terms of a special counsel being assigned to investigate Joe Biden's retention of classified documents? So... As we've looked at the question of criminality, I sort of have come to understand that criminality on someone like a president or a former president is like a really, really high bar, even higher than I thought. And one of the parts of the questions of criminality is if you take that extraordinary move to charge Trump, let's say if he was running, 
Would you be able to not only explain it to a jury, but would you be able to explain it to the public? Would the public understand it? Would they understand why you're going to such great lengths to charge someone, to use like the most sacred power of the federal government on Americans to charge them? And I think that argument becomes more difficult when you have the Biden documents. I just think that that for the Justice Department of Joe Biden, who will be running for president, you know, potentially against Donald Trump, it's it, I think it makes it more difficult. Now, look, I, you know, the Justice Department will say, you know, we're going to look at the facts and all the evidence and whatever. But I do think that is a, a huge issue in question here is that how will the public look at this? Um, I, it seems like from all the sort of very unclear timelines that we've presented on been presented on January 6th, whether we're talking about the Fulton County investigation or looking at who's getting subpoenas in the special counsel's examination of Trump's role into January 6th, that feels like it's down the line, right? That Mar-a-Lago felt for a moment like it was gaining steam in terms of potential criminal indictment. January 6th, when you talk about the gravity of, of what we're talking about, seems more plausible for issuing a criminal indictment. But the timeline on that seems in the distant future on the horizon. I mean, in Fulton County, I think you could see something sooner rather than later. I, they have this report that's gone from the grand jury. They've been investigating for a significant amount of time. It's a local prosecutor, which um, in some ways can operate more quickly than the Justice Department. I don't think any institution in the country operates slower than the, the Justice Department. So I think that that is probably the place to look in the near term for the most action. All right. Listen, before we let you go, your seminal work is now in paperback, Donald Trump versus the United States. And there is new there is new reporting in it. I must share with our viewing public this alarming detail about John Kelly, former chief of staff to the president, Trump, and his first day on the job. In the first several hours of his tenure, John Kelly learned of a rumor circulating in the West Wing. The beleaguered and soon-to-be former chief strategist to Trump, Steve Bannon, had installed some sort of listening device in the chief of staff's office. It was unclear where Bannon was or what he was up to, and there was a sense that Trump was preparing to fire him. Nevertheless, the possibility that he could be listening in on Kelly's first day was real. So throughout the day, as Kelly was familiarizing himself with the basics of West Wing and figuring out where the nearest men's room was, he whispered as he spoke with aides like Kirsten Nielsen when they were in his office. When Kelly wanted to speak in normal tones, he would step out onto the small patio just off his office. It was like something out of a bad spy movie. I mean, it's amazing that anyone went to work for this man. And yet, Steve Bannon, does he still remain in Trump's good graces? Yes. Amazingly. Yes, amazingly. And, you know, received a pardon from Trump and was part of January 6th. And, um, you know, and only after only spending about six months in the White House and bugging the chief of staff, there was office, a rumor apparently. that was going around that he had. And Kelly, who's looking, who's trying to get his feet underneath him and soon comes to realize that the biggest problem is North Korea is dealing with, you know, rumors and frivolousness and fights between the first lady and Ivanka and telling Omarosa that she can't have pool parties at the White House and all while trying to stave off war with uh, North, North Korea. Korea. I mean, who among us hasn't had our office bugged on the first day of work and had to tell Omarosa she can't have pool parties, you know? Michael Schmidt, Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Thanks for your time and great reporting. It's lovely to have you here, Michael. Still to come tonight, the White House is watching what is happening in Kevin McCarthy's house, and it wants the rest of the country to know about the mess. Plus, Governor Ron DeSantis has his own version of American history, and he would like Florida citizens to learn all about it. 
keep your arms and legs inside the ride because we are going to DeSantis World. That's next. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. We reject this woke ideology. We will never surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. A few minutes ago, we were talking about states that are newly controlled by Democrats and how their agendas differ starkly from the agendas in states controlled by Republicans. And I think it's safe to say that wherever the GOP states are going next, Florida will get there first. Fresh off his big second term win, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is turbocharging his war on woke, in which woke seems to mean anything Ron DeSantis doesn't like. DeSantis goes after all kinds of things for being woke. College basketball, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, Disney, even math textbooks. And now he is slamming professional hockey. The NHL recently announced a push for more diversity in its ranks. Its workforce is over 80 percent white and its players are over 90 percent white. But when they announced a jobs fair in Florida, DeSantis's office called it discrimination for the NHL to specifically invite applicants from underrepresented backgrounds. The NHL folded and removed the job fair posting. So congratulations if you had keeping hockey white on your bingo card of Ron DeSantis second term priorities. But it is Florida's schools and university that its governor, universities that its governor is really trying to refashion in an anti-woke image. DeSantis has just packed the board of Florida's most progressive public college with hand-picked allies. He's aiming to turn new college into a conservative Christian school. These new board members include Chris Rufo, who's orchestrated the right-wing attack on critical race theory. And Rufo is straightforward about his goals. Quote, we have successfully frozen their brand, critical race theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category. Meanwhile, professors at other Florida universities are canceling their courses dealing with race for fear of being fired. Today, the presidents of Florida's system of community and state colleges put out a joint statement declaring they stand with Governor DeSantis and won't let evil critical race theory invade their campuses. Also today, the State Board of Education finalized a rule that could see school librarians prosecuted for having undesirable books in their libraries. Undesirable to DeSantis and his allies. And in a final flourish, today we learned that DeSantis has rejected a high school advanced placement course in African-American studies. The course is already being piloted in 60 schools across the country, but apparently in the state of Florida, 
That curriculum is against the law. The Conservative National Review reported excitedly today on the letter the DeSantis administration sent to the College Board, which sets AP course curricula. That letter says, quote, the content of this course is inexplicably contrary to Florida law and significantly lacks educational value. And it invites the College Board to, quote, come back to the table with lawful, historically accurate content. All of this is bad enough for the people of Florida, but it may concern all of us outside of Florida, if DeSantis really is on his way to a presidential run. Joining us now is Jelani Cobb, dean of the Columbia Journalism School and a staff writer at The New Yorker. Dean Cobb, Jelani, thanks so much for being with us. And I think there's really no better person to put in perspective how damaging this agenda is in terms of education and higher education. Can you give us your thoughts on the moves that the DeSantis administration is making to censor the teaching of history and race in this country. Sure. Uh, well, you know, there's, there's a very practical point to this. Like, they're trying to eradicate the history of the civil rights movement, the mass movement, among other things. Uh, weirdly enough, the civil rights movement is what made it possible for those universities to be so prominent in the first place. That the, the quiet uh, part of this narrative is that certainly black people uh, in the South benefited from the civil rights movement. Uh, the second biggest beneficiaries of the civil rights movement were the the Southern business class and its universities, uh, its its chambers of commerce that were hoping to modernize the South, which was viewed as an economic and intellectual backwater by much of the country, uh, and so. And this march backward to make this heavy-handed diktat about what can be taught and what can't be taught, you're literally pushing these institutions back into the past. So good luck with attracting world-class faculty and keeping them there. Uh, Good luck with attracting uh, the top students. Uh, Good luck with uh, maintaining the rankings that that make these universities in the South uh, competitive in the first place. This is a kind of rearguard march. Uh, with maybe the people who are in those crowds uh, cheering, uh, but none of those people are going to be, uh, you know, responsible for what happens when their universities start cratering it, cratering uh, in terms of their prestige and, and the regard in which people view them. I just wonder if this isn't, I mean, it seems, at least from the support that DeSantis receives in certain corners, it's part of this obsession with turning back the clock, as you said, not just in the civil rights era, but the, the sort of the intellectual flourishing of ideas that happened in higher, institu- <laughs> higher institutes of higher education in the 60s and 70s, and the sort of, you know, bringing a more inclusive, progressive view to the ways in which we understand both, you know, the canon and history and a number of other things. And, and, and the right seems to be very preoccupied with that. It's like they lost the culture war writ large, so they're going to wage it in the halls of education. And my concern is there are Republicans all over the country that look at what Ron DeSantis is doing and say, hey, I want to do that in my in my backyard. I want to do that in my state. I want to bring that kind of curricula to Wisconsin or other parts of the country where there is, you know, or Virginia, where you have Glenn Youngkin, the governor, who's expressed support for this kind of stuff. I mean, does that concern you apart from what it does to the university system? What about the general public in these states? 
Sure. I mean, it, it has negative implications all over the place. Uh, and uh, one of the, the bizarre ironies of this situation is that uh, when Ron DeSantis, uh, in, in uh, denouncing the AP course, uh, you know, he used the language of saying that this was discriminatory, that studying these subjects would be discriminatory, and implicitly discriminatory against white people. Uh, the weird thing about that, the really, really weird thing about that is that People who are scholars of critical race theory will tell you that the theory basically holds that uh, in in a society that is as uh, racially riven uh, as this one, people will use anti-discrimination tactics in order to further the cause of actual discrimination. So in short, Ron DeSantis is practicing critical race theory and doing exactly this. Uh, he's validating the theory uh, in these actions. Uh, and so, uh, but the implications of this are all over the place. And, and the last thing that I think is really important to, to note is that the kind of protections that we have and the academic freedoms that we have in this country are overwhelmingly a product of what happened during the Cold War and the McCarthy era. Uh, another point at which we saw heavy-handed attempts to try to dictate uh, what people could and could not learn, uh, people being prosecuted, people losing their jobs uh, for, for teaching uh, facts that were uh, accurate but uncomfortable. Uh, and so we're, we're yet again uh, having a march backward in the pages of history. I, I wonder if you look at this, you know, sort of holistically in terms of the Supreme Court taking up affirmative action and this movement we now see that suggests that efforts to diversify bodies, whether they're school bodies, whether they're corporate boardrooms, whether they're the NHL, are fundamentally anti-white and that they are reverse discrimination. That seems that that theory, while fringe, now seems to be more widely accepted than at any time since I have been alive. Is there any way to turn back the wheel to get back to sanity as far as what, what we're talking about when we're actually talking about diversity? Sure. Uh, I mean, so when you, you know, cited those numbers, you, the NHL, NHL's workforce being 84 percent white, uh, its players being 90 percent white, and then you look at the fact that whites are about 60 percent or 61 percent of the American population, you say, oh, well, there's a disproportionate representation there, or rather, a underrepresentation of other groups. So to frame the efforts to diversify as discriminatory are, in effect, saying that you want to uphold the kind of discrimination that has already resulted uh, in people being so poorly represented uh, uh, in that one uh, area of lots of other areas of of American employment uh, and universities and so on that we can find those same sorts of statistics about. Uh, And so I think that's what's really at the heart here, to to try to frame a upholding of the status quo and and really validation uh, of the worst sins of the past uh, and try to frame it as an actual kind of civic virtue. Validation of the worst sins of the past. That is what is actually happening here. I think it's really important to make that the headline rather than we're pushing back against some Marxist liberal ideology that's trying to brainwash everyone's children. Jelani Cobb, dean of the Columbia Journalism School and staff writer at The New Yorker. It's such an honor and pleasure to have you with us, Jelani. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. We have more to come tonight. Coming up, it has been almost a week since Kevin McCarthy finally won the speaker's gavel. Can he make it another seven days? That's next. We reject this woke ideology. We will never surrender to the woke mob. 
Florida is where woke goes to die. A few minutes ago, we were talking about states that are newly controlled by Democrats and how their agendas differ starkly from the agendas in states controlled by Republicans. And I think it's safe to say that wherever the GOP states are going next, Florida will get there first. Fresh off his big second-term win, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is turbocharging his war on woke, in which woke seems to mean anything Ron DeSantis doesn't like. DeSantis goes after all kinds of things for being woke. College basketball, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, Disney, even math textbooks. And now he is slamming professional hockey. The NHL recently announced a push for more diversity in its ranks. Its workforce is over 80% white, and its players are over 90% white. But when they announced a jobs fair in Florida, DeSantis's office called it discrimination for the NHL to specifically invite applicants from underrepresented backgrounds the NHL folded and removed the job fair posting. So congratulations if you had keeping hockey white on your bingo card of Ron DeSantis' second-term priorities. But it is Florida's schools and university that its governor, universities that its governor is really trying to refashion in an anti-woke image. DeSantis has just packed the board of Florida's most progressive public college with hand-picked allies. He's aiming to turn New College into a conservative Christian school. These new board members include Chris Rufo, who's orchestrated the right-wing attack on critical race theory. And Rufo is straightforward about his goals. Quote, we have successfully frozen their brand, critical race theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category. Meanwhile, professors at other Florida universities are canceling their courses dealing with race for fear of being fired. Today, the presidents of Florida's system of community and state colleges put out a joint statement declaring they stand with Governor DeSantis and won't let evil critical race theory invade their campuses. Also today, the State Board of Education finalized a rule that could see school librarians prosecuted for having undesirable books in their libraries. Undesirable to DeSantis and his allies. And in a final flourish, today we learned that DeSantis has rejected a high school advanced placement course in African-American studies. The course is already being piloted in 60 schools across the country, but apparently in the state of Florida, that curriculum is against the law. The Conservative National Review reported excitedly today on the letter the DeSantis administration sent to the College Board, which sets AP course curricula. That letter says, quote, the content of this course is inexplicably contrary to Florida law and significantly lacks educational value. And it invites the College Board to, quote, come back to the table with lawful, historically accurate content. All of this is bad enough for the people of Florida, but it may concern all of us outside of Florida, if DeSantis really is on his way to a presidential run. Joining us now is Jelani Cobb, dean of the Columbia Journalism School and a staff writer at The New Yorker. Dean Cobb, Jelani, thanks so much for being with us. And I think there's really no better person to put in perspective how damaging this agenda is in terms of education and higher education. Can you give us your thoughts on the moves that the DeSantis administration is making to censor the teaching of history and race in this country. 
Sure. Uh, well, you know, there's, there's a very practical point to this. Like, they're trying to eradicate the history of the civil rights movement, the movement, among other things. Uh, weirdly enough, the civil rights movement is what made it possible for those universities to be so prominent in the first place. That the, the quiet uh, part of this narrative is that certainly black people uh, in the South benefited from the civil rights movement. Uh, the second biggest beneficiaries of the civil rights movement were the the Southern business class at its universities. Uh, it's, it's chambers of commerce that were hoping to modernize the South, which was viewed as an economic and intellectual backwater by much of the country. Uh, and so, in this march backward to make this heavy-handed uh, diktat uh, about what can be taught and what can't be taught, you're literally pushing these institutions back into the past. So good luck with attracting world-class faculty and keeping them there. Uh, good luck with attracting uh, the top students. Uh, good luck with uh, maintaining the rankings that, that make these universities in the South uh, competitive in the first place. This is a kind of rearguard march uh, with maybe the people who are in those crowds uh, cheering, uh, but none of those people are going to be, uh, you know, responsible for what happens when their universities start cratering, at cratering, uh, in terms of their prestige and, and the regard in which people view them. I just wonder if this isn't, I mean, it seems, at least from the support that DeSantis receives in certain corners, it's part of this obsession with turning back the clock, as you said, not just in the civil rights era, but the, the sort of the intellectual flourishing of ideas that happened in higher, institu <laughs> higher institutes of higher education in the 60s and 70s, and the sort of, you know, bringing a more inclusive, progressive view to the ways in which we understand both, you know, the canon and history and a number of other things. And, and, and the right seems to be very preoccupied with that. It's like they lost the culture war writ large, so they're going to wage it in the halls of education. And my concern is there are Republicans all over the country that look at what Ron DeSantis is doing and say, hey, I want to do that in my in my backyard. I want to do that in my state. I want to bring that kind of curricula to Wisconsin or other parts of the country where there is, you know, or Virginia, where you have Glenn Youngkin, the governor, who's expressed support for this kind of stuff. I mean, does that concern you apart from what it does to the university system? What about the general public in these states? Sure. I mean, it, it has negative implications all over the place. Uh, and uh, one of the, the bizarre ironies of this situation is that uh, when Ron DeSantis, uh, in, in uh, denouncing the AP course, uh, you know, he used the language of saying that this was discriminatory, that studying these subjects would be discriminatory and implicitly discriminatory against white people. Uh, the weird thing about that, the really, really weird thing about that is that People who are scholars of critical race theory will tell you that the theory basically holds that uh, in in a society that is as uh, racially driven uh, as this one, people will use anti-discrimination tactics in order to further the cause of actual discrimination. So, in short— Ron DeSantis is practicing critical race theory and doing exactly this. Uh, he's validating the theory uh, in these actions. Uh, and so, uh, but the implications of this are all over the place. And, and the last thing that I think is really important to, to note is that the kind of protections that we have and the academic freedoms that we have in this country are 
overwhelmingly a product of what happened during the Cold War and the McCarthy era. Uh, another point at which we saw heavy-handed attempts to try to dictate uh, what people could and could not learn, uh, people being prosecuted, people losing their jobs uh, for, for teaching uh, facts that were uh, accurate but uncomfortable. Uh, and so we're, we're yet again uh, having a march backward in the pages of history. I, I wonder if you look at this, you know, sort of holistically in terms of the Supreme Court taking up affirmative action and this movement we now see that suggests that efforts to diversify bodies, whether they're school bodies, whether they're corporate boardrooms, whether they're the NHL, are fundamentally anti-white and that they are di- reverse discrimination. That seems that that theory, while fringe, now seems to ha- be more widely accepted than at any time since I have been alive. Is there any way to turn sure. back the wheel to get back to sanity as far as what, you know, what we're talking about when we're actually talking about diversity? Sure. Uh, I mean, so when you, you know, cited those numbers, you, the NHL, NHL's workforce being 84 percent white, uh, its players being 90 percent white, and then you look at the fact that whites are about 60 percent or 61 percent of the American population, you say, oh, well, there's a disproportionate representation there, or rather, a underrepresentation of other groups. So to frame the efforts to diversify as discriminatory are, in effect, saying that you want to uphold the kind of discrimination that has already resulted uh, in people being so poorly represented uh, uh, in that one uh, area, the lots of other areas of, of American employment uh, and universities and so on that we can find those same sorts of statistics about. Uh, and so I think that's what's really at the heart here, to, to try to frame a upholding of the status quo and, and really validation uh, of the worst sins of the past uh, and try to frame it as an actual kind of civic virtue. Validation of the worst sins of the past. That is what is actually happening here. I think it's really important to make that the headline rather than we're pushing back against some Marxist liberal ideology that's trying to brainwash everyone's children. Jelani Cobb, dean of the Columbia Journalism School and staff writer at The New Yorker. It's such an honor and pleasure to have you with us, Jelani. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. 